Welcome to Act Declaration and Testimony for the whole of our covenanted reformation in Britain, Ireland, and particularly betwixt the years of 1638 and 1649 inclusive. We were beginning to read at in the Marshall and Langtree version, 1850, on page 90. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www. PuritanDownloads.com Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to S.W. Arby's reading of the Act and Testimony from the Reformed Presbytery, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. The written word is affirmed to be perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7. Sinners are reproved for doing that which the Word gave no command for. Jeremiah 7.31 and 19.5 And challenged for following the promising appearances. Isaiah 30 verses 1, 2, 3, and 11 It is therefore daring presumption to set up providence for a rule in opposition to the written law of God. Hence, it must be concluded either that the preceptive will of God in the scriptures is imperfect, or the laws therein repealable by providence, or then that providence cannot be the rule of human actions. 3. If the distinction between the preceptive and providential will of God is to be overthrown then providence must be expressive of God's approbative ordination equally as his revealed will is. For without this, namely the divine approbation, there can be no lawful title to what is possessed. But this is what providence of itself cannot do. It cannot, without the precept, discover either God's allowance or disallowance. If, then, this distinction is denied, and the providential will of God asserted to be declarative of his preceptive, and so of his approbative will, it remains to be manifested 
where and how it has been appointed of God for such an end, an end that is by the Spirit of God denied unto it. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1, 2, and 4. If this distinction is to be overthrown, then either the providential will of God, without any regard to the precept in every case and in every sort of tenure, gives a just and lawful right and title, or God has declared in his word that it shall be so in the matter of civil government only, namely, that whosoever gains the ascendancy in the inclinations of the people, by whatever sinful method this is obtained, it matters not, and so is by the hand of providence raised up above all his rivals to the regal dignity. He is the lawful magistrate, God's ordinance according to his precept. The first cannot be said, it were impious to suppose it, for that would justify all robberies and violences, and legitimate every fraud. Not the latter, for where is it to be found in all the book of divine revelation that God hath made such a law touching magistracy? But how big with absurdities to say that a holy God has given to man a plain and positive law to be his governing rule in every particular that concerns him, this of magistracy only excepted. In this great ordinance he hath wholly left him to be guided, or rather misled, and bewildered by his own corrupt inclinations. But the contrary of this has been in part discovered, and may further. Fifth, if in order to establish their anti-government scheme, the aforesaid distinction is to be destroyed, and all such as are providential powers and acknowledged by man are also preceptive and therefore to be submitted to for conscience sake, then are the kingdoms of men necessarily obliged to own and submit unto the dominion of the devil. The devil not only claims to himself the possession of, of the power of all the kingdoms of this world, but it is certain that of the most of them he still retains an actual predominancy, hence styled the God of this world. Now, it cannot be refused, but that the power he exercises is providential, or a power of permission. And it is most certain that it is with the consent and good will of all the children of men, while in a natural state. But are men therefore obliged to acknowledge his authority or submit to that providential power he maintains over them? If every providential power is also preceptive, the answer must be given in the affirmative. The like may be said of the Pope of Rome, the devil's captain general, to display his hellish banner against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with respect to those nations where he is acknowledged in his diabolical pretensions. It can be to no purpose for seceders to allege that the Pope claims a power unlawful in itself and therefore cannot be owned in regard the person whom they make a pretended acknowledgment of as their lawful sovereign 
is by the act of his constitution invested with a similar power, a power both civil and ecclesiastical, and declared to be the head of the church as well as the state. Nothing, therefore, remains for them but either to acknowledge this clear distinction between the providential and preceptive will of God, or then profess the lawfulness of both the above-mentioned powers. First, if the aforesaid distinction is too big with absurdities to be received, and if the authority of all providential magistrates does equally arise from and agree unto the precept, then it would be no sin to resist the powers ordained of God, provided that providence proves auspicious and favorable to the rebel, and advances him to the throne with the good will of his fellow rebellious subjects by expelling the lawful sovereign. At least such resistance could not be determined to be sinful until once the event declared whether providence would countenance the treasonable attempt or not. Thus, what the apostle declares a damnable sin in Romans 13.2 must be justified and made the foundation of subsequent duty if patronized by a multitude. This they evidently maintain, as appears from their Declaration of Principles on page 82, where, pretending to obviate some difficulties anent their principles arising from the people of God's disowning anti-scriptural magistrates, the whole, in quotes, the whole nature of any simple revolt, say they, lies in breaking off immediately from the civil body by withdrawing from or withdrawing parts of their territories, and then it necessarily follows at the same time that these revolters break off from the head of the civil body without ever denying his authority over the members who still cleave unto the same. This, in connection with their grand foundation principle, and the scope of their discourse at the above citation, discovers that they grant that if the whole civil society should reject the authority they had set up, however agreeable it should have been to the preceptive will of God, and should again set up another, though never so opposite thereto, their doing so would be lawful, but it is not lawful for a few to disown any authority, however wicked and anti-scriptural, unless they can at the same time withdraw from or withdraw part of his territories. Nothing can be more absurd than to say that a people are bound by the laws of God to give subjection for conscience sake, and yet at the same time are at liberty to cast off and reject the same authority at pleasure. If the magistrate be lawful, it is utterly unlawful to reject him. An attempt to divest him of his power, office, and authority, though carried on by the primores regni, is rebellion against God. It is most ridiculous to allege that a people considered as a body politic are not under the same obligation to their rightful sovereign as when they are considered as individuals but may lawfully reject him and set up another if they please, so that he who one day is God's minister next day hath no title to that office, but if he claim it, 
must be treated as a traitor, whereby all security that can possibly be given to the most lawful magistrate is at once destroyed. Thus, if the chevalier had succeeded in his late attempt, had gained the favor of the primores regni, and thereby mounted the British throne, seceders must then of necessity either have quit their present principles, or then have subjected to his yoke for conscience sake under the pain of eternal damnation. His being a professed papist, an enslaved vassal of Rome, could not have warranted them to leave their place of subjection to them to him while owned by the civil society, and so they must have treated the present powers as usurpers and enemies to government, though they now flatter them with the pretensions of an ill-grounded loyalty. Again, how absurd and self-contradictory to grant that a minor part may not only revolt but also withdraw part of a prince's territories, and yet that, secondly, the same party may not, when residing in the nation, refuse to acknowledge the lawfulness of an anti-scriptural power. This is to say that people are no longer obliged to submit to authority than they are in capacity to withdraw from or withdraw part of their prince's territories from him, and so to justify their rebellion by that which can only be a terrible aggravation of their sin. These, with a number of other absurdities, natively flow from a denial of the distinction between the providential and preceptive will of God, making the title of the lawful magistrate depend solely upon the will of the people. Nothing is more evident than this, that if the inclinations of the people, exclusive all of all other qualifications, constitute a lawful magistrate, then Though he rules ever so agreeable to God's preceptive will, so soon as his body, though in a most unjust and tyrannical manner, casts him off, he that moment forever loses all title and claim to the office and can no longer be regarded as a lawful magistrate, a principle that in its nature and tendency is introductive of all anarchy and confusion and with the greatest propriety deserves the encomium of the anti-government scheme. Secondly, this anarchical scheme of principles, which destroys the above just and necessary distinction, is directly in opposition to the laudable and almost universal practice of all nations in ordaining and enacting certain fundamental laws, constitutions, and provisos, whereby the throne is fenced, the way to it limited, and the property thereof predisposed. The scripture sufficiently discovers those restrictions and rules which God himself has prescribed and laid down for directing and determining of his people's procedures about the erection of magistrates. And profane history abounds in discovering certain fundamental laws and conditions to take place almost in every nation without conforming to which none can be admitted to that dignity over them. 
But to what purpose are any such laws and constitutions if this vague principle is once admitted, which cancels and disannuls all such provisos and acts? Why should Moses have been so solicitous about his successor in the government of Israel? Numbers 27, 15-17 If God had ordained, the inclinations of the people alone should determine. Or to what purpose did Israel, after the death of Joshua, ask of God, who should be their leader, if their own inclinations alone were sufficient to determine it? If God had de has declared that the corrupt will of the people is the alone basis of civil power, then not only are all state constitutions and fundamental laws useless, because on every vacancy of the throne they not only must all give place to the superior obligation, the uncontrollable law of this uncertain inclinations of the body politic, but they are in their nature unlawful, their proper use in every nation being to prevent all invasion upon the government by unqualified persons and to illegitimate it, if at any time done. So that, if the consent of civil society is the only essential condition of government which God has authorized, not only are all scriptural conditions and qualifications useless and unlawful, but also all human securities either from intruders or for lawful governors, are unlawful. In regard, the very design of them all is to oppose this grand foundation principle, the jura divinity of which seceders have found out and do confidently maintain. And thus, by the seceding scheme, is condemned not only the practice of almost all other nations determining by law, some indispensable qualifications that their rulers must have, but particularly the practice of these once reformed lands, when Reformation had the sanction not only of ecclesiastic, but also of civil authority, is hereby condemned. Scripture and covenant qualifications were then made essential to the being of a lawful magistrate by the fundamental laws and constitutions of the nations, so that however the inclinations of the people might run, as it soon appeared they were turned in opposition to these, yet by these laws, and in a consistency with that constitution, none could be admitted to the place or places of civil authority, but such as professed and outwardly practiced according to Reformation principles. See Act the 15th, Session 2nd, Parliament, 1649. And how happy we had been if we had constantly acted in conformity to these agreeable laws, experience, both former and latter, will bear witness. How much better had it been for us to have walked in God's statutes and executed His judgments than by our abhorrence of them and apostasy from them to provoke him to give us statutes that are not good and judgments whereby we cannot live, Ezekiel twenty twenty five, or have any comfortable enjoyment and possession of the blessings and privileges of his everlasting gospel as it is with us at this day. 
And yet, this is what seceders would have us caressing, embracing, and with them, blessing God for, under the notion of a present good. And so, bless God for permitting his enemies, in anger against an ungrateful and guilty people, to overturn his work and interest, and establish themselves upon the ruins thereof, to bless him for making our own iniquities to correct us, and our backslidings to reprove us, until we know what an evil and bitter thing it is to depart from the Lord God of our fathers, to bless him for what is matter of lamentation, that the adversaries of Zion are the chief and her enemies proper, prosper. Lamentations 1.5 And all this abstractly under the notion of good, which comes very near the borders of blasphemy. But moreover, the civil sentiment at the revolution is also condemned by this principle of theirs, not because of its opposition to a covenanted reformation, but in regard it includes some essential qualifications required in the supreme civil ruler. The nations are, by that deed of constitution, bound up in their election of a magistrate, and all papists, such as, and such as marry with papists, or do not publicly profess the Protestant religion, are declared incapable of the throne, so that we see the present law makes some other qualifications besides the consent of the body politic essential to the constitution of a lawful sovereign in Britain, from all which it is plain that this principle of seceders is neither a reformation nor a revolution principle. Let then the impartial world judge whence it came. Seceders, in consequence of their contradictory and self-inconsistent system of principles, declare they cannot swear allegiance to a lawful government. They maintain the present to be lawful, yet in December, DEC period of their principles, page 55th, they say, O declaration of their principles, page 55th, they say, the question is not whether it be lawful for us to swear the present allegiance to the civil government, which the presbytery acknowledge they cannot do, seeing there are no oaths to the government in being but what exclude the oath of our covenants and homologate the United Constitution. End quote. But seeing they acknowledge that every constitution of government that comprehends the will and consent of civil society, were it as wicked and diabolical as can be imagined, is lawful, yea, as lawful as any that is most consonant to the preceptive will of God having all the essentials of his ordinance, and seeing, because of the will and consent of the people, they own the present to be lawful. It is most surprising why they cannot swear allegiance to it. Their reasons cannot, in a consistency with their principle, be sustained as valid. That the present oaths of allegiance and the oath of the covenants are inconsistent is readily granted, but seeing the oaths of allegiance bind to nothing more than that than what they confess they are bound to for conscience sake, namely to own the lawfulness of the government and to maintain it according to the constitution thereof, which is a duty owed by subjects to every lawful sovereign, 
and seeing that whatever is in the oaths of allegiance contrary to the covenants does not flow from them, abstractly considered, but from the constitution to which they bind, which constitution is sanctified by the people's acknowledgement of it. If, therefore, the covenants forbid a duty to which they are bound to for conscience sake, their authority in that ought not to be regarded. But certainly seceders who have found it duty to alter and model covenants according to the circumstances of the times they live in might have found it easy work to reconcile the oath of the covenants with allegiance to a lawful government. The other part of their reason is no less ridiculous and self-contradictory, namely, quote, they cannot swear allegiance to the present government because it homologates the United Constitution. End quote. But is it not this constitution according to the will and by consent of the body politic? And is it not ordained by the providential will of God? Therefore, according to them, has all the essentials of a lawful constitution which claims a protection under pain of damnation. How great the par paradox! They cannot swear allegiance because they would bind them to acknowledge and defend a lawful constitution. Is not active obedience, is not professed subjection for conscience sake, an homologation of the Constitution? Certainly they are, and that not in word only, but indeed and in truth. And what is the allegiance but a promise to persevere in what they do daily, and what they hold as their indispensable duty to do? To grant the one then and refuse the other is in effect to homologate or acknowledge the Constitution and not to acknowledge it at the same time, which is a glaring absurdity. But here they would have people attend to their chimerical distinction between the king's civil and ecclesiastical authority. They have made a successless attempt in order to establish their anti-government scheme for the overthrow of a distinction which heaven has irreversibly fixed between the preceptive and providential will of God, and for the same purpose they will impose this distinction on the generation, a mere shift and artifice, which has no foundation nor subsistence anywhere else but in their imagination, and serves for no purpose but to cheat their own and others' consciences and betray the cause of God. It is plain that as a power, both civil and ecclesiastical, belongs to the essence and constitution of an English diocesan bishop, so the same is declared to belong now to the essence and constitution of an English king, who is the head and chief prelate among them all. And it is their manner to call themselves his bishops, not Christ's, as having their power, both ecclesiastical and civil, immediately from him, as the fountain of all power within his dominions, so that there is no room for this distinction of seceders here, unless they are such expert logicians as to distinguish a thing from that which is essential to it, and so from itself. But this is a destruction, not a distinction. Seceders indeed presume and depend very much upon their abilities of this kind, 
for they can distinguish between the magistrate's office and its essential qualifications, which God has inseparably joined together in his word. They can distinctly pray for the head, author, authorizer, and prime supporter of abjured prelacy and prelates, that God would bless him in his government, and yet not pray for the prelates themselves. They can pray very fervently and distinctly for the British and Irish parliaments, and yet not at all pray for the bishops, necessary and essential members there. And what is all this but to pray for a non-entity, a mere creature of their own mind? They have neither king nor parliament in their abstracted and imaginary sense, but do clearly distinguish themselves out of both. We might refer them to that famous and faithful ambassador and renowned martyr for the cause and testimony of Jesus, Mr. Donald Cargill, in his last speech and testimony, and let him determine the controversy in this particular between us. They will not be so bold as to say that this honorable witness died with a lie in his right hand. His words are these. As to the cause of my suffering, the main is not acknowledging the present authority as it is now established. This is the magistracy I have rejected that was invested with Christ's power. And seeing that power taken from Christ, which is his glory, and made the essential of the crown, I thought it was as if I had seen one wearing my husband's clothes after he had killed him. And seeing it is made the essential of the crown, there is no distinction we can make that can free the conscience of the acknowledger from being a partaker of the sacrilegious robbing of God. And it is but to cheat our conscience to acknowledge the civil power for it is not the civil power only that is made the essential of the crown. And seeing they are so express, we must be plain, for otherwise it is to deny our testimony and consent to his robbery. End quote. From these words, it is evident first that Mr. Cargill was no seceder, or of their mind in this particular, and second, that at the time there were some who did cheat and impose upon their own consciences by distinguishing, where there was no room for distinction, between the king's civil and ecclesiastical authority, which distinction was condemned and testified against by all who were truly faithful to Christ and their own consciences, and tender of his honor and glory by their unanimous rejection of that anti-Christian and unlawful power, and that when they had much more reason and temptation to fly to such a subterfuge for their safety than seceders now have. And third, from these words, it is also clear that Mr. Cargill and that poor distressed and persecuted people that adhered to him rejected and disclaimed the, the then authority not so much because of their tyranny and maladministrations as on account of the unlawfulness and wickedness of the Constitution itself, which was the prime original and spring of all the wickedness in the administration, namely, 
because the king arrogantly and sacrilegiously assumed to himself that power which was the sole and glorious prerogative of Jesus Christ. And as to the difference that seceders make between that and the present time since the revolution, it is certain that whatever greater degree of absolute supremacy was then assumed by Charles II, it does not vary the kind of that claimed, or rather conferred on and exercised, by the supreme powers since the revolution, for magis et minus non variant spatium, nor acquit them of the guilt of robbing the Son of God, Jesus Christ, of his incommunicable prerogative and supremacy in and over his church, as the only king and head thereof. Nor will the difference of times, while the Constitution remains the same, while God remains the same, and the truth and duty remain the same, nor yet any distinction that can be made, free the conscience of the acknowledger more now than then from being a partaker, art and part, with the civil power in this sacrilegious robbery. Psalm 50, verse 18, When thou sawest a thief, then thou contendest with him, and so forth. But passing this, seeing the above-mentioned reasons which the cedars allege why they cannot swear allegiance to the present government, which they assert is lawful and scriptural, cannot be sustained, some others must be sought for them, and they may be either because the ju they judge allegiance itself unlawful, or rather because then they would be bound by oath to continue faithful to this government in all changes that can happen. Whereas now they are free and equally ready, in a full consistency with their principles, to profess their subjection to another, were it even a popish pretender. For according to them, an infidel or papist may have a just and lawful authority over us, notwithstanding all, both the Reformation and Revolution laws, to the contrary. If, therefore, the legislature would, in the oath of allegiance, insert this limitation, namely, so long as the body politic is pleased to acknowledge the supreme magistrate, they would find it easier to come over their other pretended and inconsistent difficulties. For the truth is, they cannot, in a consistency with their anti-government scheme and the safe consciences, swear to any government, but with such limitation in regard they cannot be sure. But he that is now owned by civil society may be rejected, and another set up, who must be acknowledged. So they would be brought into an inextricable dilemma. Either they must own them to be God's ordinance, which is absurd, or then be perjured by rejecting him to whom they had sworn, and then incur damnation by refusing obedience to him who is set up by the body politic. Such is the labyrinth of confusion and contradiction this anarchical system leads into, a system that cancels all constitutions by God and men anent civil governments. First, this anti-government seceding principle destructive of said distinction between the providential and preceptive will of God is both contrary to 
and confuted by many approved scriptural examples in which the Spirit of God testifies that the actual possession of the throne under the favor of providence and by the consent of a majority of a nation may be in one while the moral power and right of government is in another. The Word of God acknowledges David the rightful sovereign over all Israel for the space of forty years. 1 Kings 2.11, 1 Chronicles 29.26 and 27. Seven of these he is said to have reigned in Hebron and thirty-three in Jerusalem. During the first seven years of his reign at Hebron, there is a positive confinement of his actual rule to the tribe of Judah only. Second Samuel chapter 5 verse 5 And at the same time Ishbosheth is said to be made king over all Israel and to have reigned two years. In agreeableness to seceding principles there is no reconciling these different texts. According to their scheme, David can, with no propriety, be said to have reigned forty years over all Israel, seeing seven of the years were elapsed before he was actually acknowledged by all Israel, before providence put him in the actual possession of all that extensive power. There is another known example, applicable to the present purpose, in the instance of David, during the rebellion of his unnatural son Absalom. According to the sacred story, 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, it appears that he was wholly ejected, both out of the hearts and territories of Israel, and not only the throne, but the will and consent of the people given up to Absalom. But was David therefore divested of his right and title? Though it is most contrary to Scripture to suppose it, Yet according to seceders, seeing Absalom was king by possession of the throne, and had not only the power providentially put into his hand, but had it also by the consent of the people. It necessarily follows that Absalom, being a providential magistrate, his office and authority did equally arise from and agree to the preceptive will of God, and subjection and obedience for conscience' sake was equally due to him as to David by the Israelitish tribes. And so it was a damnable sin in David to fight against him, as it could be no less than a resisting the ordinance of God. The same may be said with respect to the other revolt by the instigation and under the conduct of Sheba, Second Samuel chapter 20. But although, according to seceders, he must also have been their lawful magistrate, the Spirit of God discovers the reverse, still acknowledging the right of government in all these changes to be in David. Another example is in the case of Solomon, who was ordained to, or designed by God expressly for the kingdom of Israel. Adonijah had obtained the ascendancy, both in respect of actual possession and the inclinations and consent of the majority of the nation. The consent was general. 1 Kings 1, 5, 7, 9, 11, 18, 25, and 2, 15. He had all to plead for himself, which seceders make essential to the constitution of a lawful king. 
He had got to the throne by providence and had full admission and possession by the inclinations of the people. If, then, there is no distinction to be made of those who are acknowledged by civil society into such as are so by the preceptive will of God and such as are so by his providential will only, then Solomon had no right nor title to the crown and the enterprise of David and Nathan and so forth of setting him on the throne was utterly unlawful. Both they and Solomon ought to have acquiesced in the duty of subjection to Adonijah as being the ordinance of God. But this would have been opposite to the express direction of the Lord appointing the kingdom to Solomon. It was his from the Lord, as Adonijah himself confessed. To the same purpose might be adduced the instance of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, who was king de jour, even when Athaliah had not only the countenance of providence, but the consent of the people in, possession, in the possession of the kingdom. Second Chronicles 22, 10 and, 10 and 12. Again, the practice of nations in owning those for their lawful sovereigns who by providence were put from the actual exercise of their rule and authority contributes to confute this absurd notion. Thus the people of Israel, who had risen up for Absalom, do even, when David was out of the land, own him for their king. So during the Babylonish captivity there are several persons noted as princes of Judah, whom the people owned as having the right of government over them with a variety of other instances all discovering, in opposition to their anarchical system, that it is not by the dispensations of providence that the right and title of the lawful magistrate is to be determined. Moreover, as the associate presbytery have so barefacedly belied the scriptures of truth as to assert that there cannot be so much as an instance found in all the history of the Old Testament of any civil members refusing, either by word or deed, an acknowledgment of or subjection unto the authority of any magistrate actually in office by the will of the civil body. Besides what have been already adduced, take these few following examples of many. After that Saul, by his disobedience to the commandment of the Lord, had forfeited his title to the kingdom. He was secondly no more honored as king by Samuel the prophet. But on the contrary, he was openly testified to his face that the Lord had rejected him from being king. 1 Samuel 15, verses 26 through 35. Though he mourned over him as one rejected, yet he no more acknowledged him as clothed with the authority as a lawful king. Nay, the Lord, having rejected him, reproves his prophet for mourning for him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. From which and the command he received to anoint David in his stead, and that even while the civil society did acknowledge and was subject unto Saul, it appears that the throne of Israel was then regarded both by the Lord and his prophet as vacant until David was anointed, from which time in the eye of the divine law he was the rightful king and ought in consequence of the public intimation made by the prophet of Saul's rejection 
to have been acknowledged as the Lord's anointed by the whole kingdom of Israel. In agreeableness, whereto the scripture informs that not only David, in expectation of the Lord's promise, resisted Saul as an unjust usurper, but many among the tribes of Israel, whom the Spirit of God honorably mentions, rejected the government of Saul and joined themselves to him that was really anointed of the Lord. First Chronicles 20, 12, 1-23 Now, if the Lord did command, under pain of damnation, to give loyal obedience to all in the place of supreme authority, however wicked, while acknowledged by the body politic, he would not reject such, nor command to set up others in their room, nor approve of those who disowned and resisted them. But all this is done in this instance, which of itself is sufficient to overthrow their scheme. Another instance is in Second Chronicles 11, 13 and 16, where the authority of Jeroboam is rejected and cast off, even when acknowledged and submitted to by the nation of Israel, by the priests and Levites, and after them by all such as did set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, though through all the ten tribes, and this because of his abominable wickedness, whereby it appears a commendable duty to refuse the lawfulness of the authority of wicked occupants, though acknowledged by the majority of a nation. A similar example there is in the reign of Baasha, who could not by all his vigilance prevent many from casting off his government. Second Chronicles 15.9 Again, there is an express example of Elisha's disowning the king of Israel, even when the civil society owned him. 2 Kings 3, 14 and 15 He did not regulate his conduct by providence and the will of the people, but in opposition to both, refused him that honor that is due to all that are really kings. To these may be added that notable example of Libna, a city of the priests who could not have but have acknowledged by the law of their God what was their duty in Second Chronicles 21.10. Here is an instance of a people casting off allegiance to a king properly because of his apostasy and intolerable wickedness whereby they bore testimony against him and discovered what the duty of the whole nation on account of his apostasy from the Lord. Their so doing was a most positive, actual, and express condemnation, both of Jehoram for his wickedness and of the people for concurring, joining with him and strengthening his hands in it. Even as Noah, by his faith and obedience, is said to have condemned the antediluvian world in Hebrews 9.7. And this their conduct and testimony the Spirit of God justifies and records to their honor. These few of many that might be adduced declare the impudence as well as the fallacy and imposture of seceders in this matter, and also justify the principles which they maliciously nickname the anti-government scheme, and that for no other reason but because it establishes the ordinance of magistracy among a people favored by God with divine revelation upon his preceptive will, in opposition to their anarchical notions of setting it wholly upon the tottering basis of the corrupt will of man.
And to conclude this particular, how ridiculously absurd it is then in them to insinuate that in the examples above or others to be found in sacred history, those persons did, notwithstanding their own practice in rejecting the authority of wicked rulers, still view it as the duty of the rest of the nation to acknowledge them. This is pure jargon and nonsense, contrary both to the reason and religion. By what law could the opposite practices of those that disowned and those that still continued to own the authority of unlawful rulers be justified? It could not by the divine law, which never condemns that as sin in one which it approves as duty in others in the same circumstances. Seeing therefore these in the instances above are justified, the practice of those who continued to acknowledge the lawfulness of these wicked rulers must be regarded as condemned both by the divine law and also by the practices of the above persons which do all jointly concur in witnessing that they viewed it the duty of all the rest of the nation to have done as they did and from the whole it appears a commendable duty for the lord's people to disown the right and lawfulness of rulers set up in contradiction to the divine law Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.